Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Blaze Mara. We are continuing our look at the films directed by Paul Schrader, digging into a little more obscure category here with <laughs> Touch and Affliction, both from 1997. Although Affliction, uh, uh, James Coburn, who plays the dad in Affliction, won the supporting actor Oscar for the movie. Oh, he did. I thought his performance was really good. So, yeah. <laughs> so maybe not a super deep, uh, pretty deep, pretty deep cuts, really. Pretty much forgotten movies from 25, 30 years ago. The, the Academy finally glancing at at Paul Schrader like they do every once in a while. <laughs> Just the occasional like, oh, yes, oh, you did hey. do a notable movie. Oh, this guy's making like the best American movies going on right now, huh? Oh, hmm. What what so blew you... my mind? Apparently, apparently, a uh, affliction didn't get a wide release until like December ninety eight, January ninety nine. But like, it was filmed in February ninety seven, and shown at a film festival in August. That blows my mind. I, was... <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, it. I I have no further thoughts about that. But that's just like wow, Schrader the machine. <laughs> So two movies released in the same year, or at least filmed in the same year. That's how he did it. Yeah, he's uh, cranking them out. It's funny that these um, funny that these movies are both based on books, and we we should say uh, we both read the books and then watched the movies. I'm I, I don't do that a lot, so I'm excited. I I read Affliction and I listened to Touch, and then I watched the movies. I read but, I read them both. Yeah. Yeah. But I but I promised uh that I my commentary won't be limited to just comparing, well, that's not in the book. Oh. Well, that's not in the movie. <laughs> well, in both cases, it's like a whole different experience. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Watching a movie versus reading a book. Yes, they're always gonna be different experiences, but they're really different experiences. Hmm. Especially it, affliction, right? Yeah. Affliction, the book, is a lot more detailed than Affliction, the movie. And Affliction, the movie, is tough enough, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, I was actually reading Affliction while I was on vacation. Oh. Because, you know, we were on vacation about the last few weeks. And I was like, I got to read this book. But it's like this crazy thing to be reading this book while we're, like, wandering around Ireland. You know? So we're looking at these sheep and seeing these beautiful views. And I'm stuck in this cold, wintry desolation wow with this cold wintry desolate family uh it was an interesting uh like whipsaw man <laughs> we could have scheduled that better to have you reading that <laughs> book on your vacation oh my god like like you're on vacation abroad you're supposed to be like enjoying yourself and then back at the hotel room each night you crack open affliction and you're reading about this dude who's like stuck you know, I could have planned it better too, because I also watched Twin Peaks: The Return during the vacation. <laughs> oh, you know, maybe that—that that sounds like something I would do. Like, I can't have too much fun. I have to drag myself <laughs> back down. Well, in that case, it's like all my friends love Twin Peaks: The Return. Wow. I'm behind the times. I got to watch this thing already. I at least got to watch the the A bomb episode. Mm. Um. And like, okay, I've got 17 hours or whatever to devote to it. I'm just going to do it. And I realized like partway through, like, 
I'm so interested. I got to figure out what happened, especially with Cooper and this stupid Vegas plot line. Uh, but but like I'm trapped. I have to watch it, but I don't want to because it's also desolate and painful. Mm. <laughs> but you know, it's Lynch, and I love Lynch. Anyway, we're not talking about Lynch today. We're uh, talking about the other man think- who created these these awful landscapes for his characters. <laughs> Although touch is different for Paul Schrader. I was going to say both based on novels, but uh, touch is a novel that I would not expect Paul Schrader to uh, touch. I didn't think of a better word fast enough. Whereas affliction feels like tailor made for Schrader. Like that is a Schrader book. If ever there was one. It's such a Schrader story. It's yeah. a total lonely man fighting against society. I was uh I was excited um to see Touch turned into a movie because I have family, you know, in Detroit, as we discussed in the blue collar episode. So I was excited to see Detroit in the again uh, again. But of course, because Schrader's working with less and less money. At this point in his career, uh, instead of Detroit in the 70s, for the movie, we get Los Angeles in the 90s, which made me roll by, roll my eyes. But, oh, well, it's perfectly cast besides Christopher Walken. I've got to say, perfectly cast Skeet Ulrich and Bridget Fonda, mm-hmm. and especially, especially Tom Arnold as this, like, very wonkish uh sort of like conservative activist catholic perfect i wish they pulled more of that character forward from the novel because he is such an asshole in the novel but he has motivations right he believes he's right he is actually the schrader lonely man i guess so yeah actually i had never i didn't make that connection but you're totally right i stole (laughs) from someone on letterboxd to be fair oh (laughs) because <laughs> they were they're saying i like this movie and tom arnold is the funny version of the schrader lonely man so he's this like religious crusader who believes the church should get back to preaching in uh, latin and mm. he takes all means necessary to do so including getting arrested and protesting at funerals and outrageous crap like that only yeah. a little bit of which we get in the movie yeah only a little bit the book uh, goes like deeper into his, you know, thoughts and also his like perversions, like when he's rifling through uh, Lynn's apartment and like finds her underwear uh-huh. or like uh, reads the instructions on a box of tampons because that's exciting to him. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so we should say quickly the plot of this film is uh because it's super important. Skeel Ulrich plays a man named Juvenile who has the ability to kind of faith heal people, hmm. touch them and and heal their cancers or their injuries. Bridget Fonda is a record gadfly, I'm not sure what you'd call her, who becomes kind of she falls in love with him. And it's basically about their relationship, but it the movie spo- should move ahead really crisp and in this bright, colorful palette and have all this energy and just doesn't. I agree. Yeah, I was expecting the movie to be a bit more. It, it feels kind of like jaunty and like goofy where I was expecting it to feel more sleazy, 
you know? But it's not jaunty enough either. It doesn't sell you on the jauntiness to me. <laughs> well, speaking of like, this, you go, you go. Well, I, I just want to call out one more thing for anyone who hasn't seen it. The the music is by Dave Grohl. I was just, that's what I was going to interrupt you to mention. <laughs> well, yeah. All these, all these weird, uh, all these like interesting, I keep bringing up these interesting musical collaborations. Dave Grohl, ex-Nirvana, he had just formed Foo Fighters doing this movie, which is very interesting. Um, although I got to say Dave Grohl's like guitar-based soundtrack for Touch, uh, not as good as Michael Bean's guitar-based soundtrack for Light Sleeper and not as good as, um, let me bring up his name forgot his name uh michael brooks guitar based soundtrack for affliction either dave grohl's music is um like if paul schrader was going this is paul schrader trying to do a comedy right sort of like witch hunt Mm -hmm. i feel like witch hunt like fully leans in where touch pulls back a little bit and then does so in a way that just doesn't really work. It it it's not it's not crazy enough to be funny, but it's not right. But it's not serious enough to really work on a serious level too. It's in this weird in between state, right? And the core idea is so interesting, mm-hmm. right? The, this handsome guy comes back. He's innocent because he's studied in the Amazon rainforest. Apparently, mm. um, comes back to the U.S. and isn't especially interested in being a faith healer. He ends up falling in love with this woman has this alternate life. So there's a lot there, right? Around, and then he becomes famous in in the newspapers, the newspapers, which is another weird thing. (laughs) Um, um, And then basically just drifts away from it. And like, it should be a really interesting story. And there's like four different elements to it that I think are really interesting, but never works on any level for me. Hmm. I'll I'll press you about those things that interested you about the story. Um, what I'll say about the plot is it was interesting to me that it was, um, it's kind of a media circus kind of story, like face in the mm-hmm. crowd, that kind of thing. Although uh, Touch is slightly, it, it almost takes place like slightly before the point where something like a face in the crowd starts or like ace in the hole would start, you know? It's um, it's it's kind of like Tom Arnold's character Murray, knowing, being aware of this guy Juvenile, and like, um, getting his best foot forward. Like, how am I going to like make a splash with this Juvenile guy? He's a stigmatist, the first in like ten years, you know, and that's a big deal for Catholics. And he's obsessed with like, you know, he writes these pamphlets and passes them out during mass these pamphlets about like why has god flown vatican II? you know (laughs) so he's he's kind of like leading up to the media circus that he wants to create to get people to his kind of a regressive idea of what catholics ought to be doing so it's like the the pre-media cir- circus is most of the story. And then the climax is like the media circus happening. And what I thought was interesting, fizzling out and just kind of being forgotten about. Just another 
just a like a water cooler topic of conversation for that weekend and then no more because they bungled it or murray just would say they wacky, bungled it yeah just another wacky kind of thing that crosses the, the news i wonder because <laughs> the climax is at the tv show right and he heals tom arnold after tom, he threw tom arnold out the window <laughs> which again is so much better in the book i, I yeah. don't think the book is better guy but it was so much better in the book yeah uh, uh, and he heals him like you expect it to be like all over the media at that point. Faith healer heals man, you know, but no, I'm sure like by by two days later, the conspiracy theorists were all like, oh, no, it was all staged. They planned this. This is all yep. the made up media hype. And this TV show is like, you know, it's like Jerry Springer, Dr. Phil bullshit. So, yeah. of course, even even somebody like me, who's not a conspiracy theorist, I would see that TV show and I would also go like. That's bullshit. Moving on. <laughs> show up in some looper YouTube about 10 silliest TV scams ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, like, Schrader is no Billy Wilder, right? You're talking about Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole is an amazing movie. It's a yeah. it's a four and a half, five star movie, right? Because, like, it it's gets so much into the media exploitation. And you get a sense of, like, why the media does the things. In a weird way, like, Tom Arnold is so over the top and then weirdly like janine garofalo is so quiet in this movie <laughs> yeah i thought so too that, like it doesn't really pay off and she's too she's way too quiet like she's such such a great personality usually and it's it's so weird that we've been talking about this for a little while now and we're not even talking about christopher walken isn't that usually the first guy you talk about so you mentioned you didn't like Christopher. You like you thought everyone was well cast except for Christopher Walken. I was um I was kind of casting the movie in my head, and the movie's perfectly cast except uh, I was envisioning uh, William H Macy to play the Bill Hill character personally. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's a lot better. <laughs> Christopher Walken, he's like you know this is around the like Sleepy Hollow era of Christopher Walken, you know, so he's like leaning into it he knows that the reason he gets on snl is because of the funny way he talks and he's leaning into it where like you know we last saw him in the comfort of strangers where he's doing an italian accent and playing kind of a different character you know um but here in in touch christopher walken's like doing the christopher walken thing which is bill hill his character is like a shyster is that the correct not, use of that word he's also not shyster enough yeah yeah <laughs> he's like i want him to be more over the top more walking i want to play more of that kind of verbal kind of sparring thing he does and this clever clever turn of voice and this like manipulation he does so well in so many of its other movies you know it's like you know he plays this kind of reform not reform his former preacher goes into a different business because he and, and then he sees uh juvenile as his path back to preacherhood but you never get a sense like he has this inside him somehow or or you know he doesn't have the, the he's not carrying the true walk and energy i wanted to have yeah like i wanted I the coming Bill back Hill to character. the same thing don't i i keep coming back to saying i wanted more more energy in this movie more energy yeah he should have uh Schrader should have leaned into 
the fact he the idea that he's making a comedy like he did in witch hunt and witch hunt is such a corny movie but right. like deliciously corny and cheesy and where 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 touch is uh just mild in comparison there's a couple little moments where they're cut scene to scene though there's a scene where um, they play up girl's guitar and it cuts and got these little five second scenes there as you see little snippets of things i'm like oh this movie's picking up i want to see boom 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 kind of thing and uh. then he lingers so long in these dialogue scenes and nothing really pays off i mean the movie starts with um uh, with juvenile coming into the house of some friends and he cures this woman of her blindness but it's so talky yeah it's like I wanted it to be more manic. Like the book's more manic. It's more cutting. It's got this this verve to it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that that brings up a thought for me, which is that even you know putting aside the comedy aspect, um, even like you know if he wants to do like a comedy drama or like a comedy thriller kind of thing, um, even the the serious aspects like. I also felt more um, that that those scenes in the book had more power to them because they kind of slowed down a little bit. And like uh, like when that woman, Virginia, gets her eyesight back, mm -hmm. right? I, I, as I was reading the book, I was imagining her in this like kind of dusty room with like the sunlight creeping in through the windows and she's slowly looking around and like she's got her eyesight back in, in in the movie it's just kind of touched off it's like the opening credits sequence you know oh yeah like, i got my eyesight back i'm gonna go sweep up the trailer now or sweep up the house Ooh, now. i got my eyesight back okay great <laughs> also there's also the scene um certain scenes between lynn and juvenile where they're talking about like why juvenile does it and mm, i don't know i i just felt more weight in the book compared to the movie where in the movie it kind of for the most part had the effect of just kind of like exposition i guess yeah. but it, in the book it felt like the statement of the book some of those dialogue scenes between those two I kept, you know, it's not that I want the movie to be longer. I just wanted the movie to feel like it's pulling in a little more somehow. Yeah, you know what yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it feels like it's just lacking some some soul to it. Yeah, it needed a bit more of a strong touch, which Schrader knows how to do. By the time we get into like, I don't know, the 2010s, Schrader will be like really swinging. <laughs> Well, he's had a strong touch, and we see it. And he's got a strong touch in Affliction, right? Yeah. Uh, so maybe this is just one of those movies where it's like a mismatch. Possibly. <laughs> what he wanted to take on was what, it, or maybe it was a contract. Yeah, maybe maybe they had a uh, maybe someone optioned the Leonard movie after after his other movies were so successful. And oh yeah, I would not be surprised. Yeah. And then he got hired to to just fulfill a contract. Now I now I'm curious. Oh, I forgot. Right, he wrote Justified. Let what is that? That's a TV show. I uh, thought it was a TV show. Yeah, I don't know what about though. 
I have friends who love it. I haven't watched it. That's the one with Timothy Oliphant, where he's like a small town sheriff haunted by mm. his past. It's supposed to be very good. Yeah, I was. I had never heard of Elmore Leonard as we were uh, leading up to this. I was very surprised. Like he wrote 310 to Yuma and, and stuff like that. I was very surprised. But I, I Shorty had been two years earlier, and that was mm. a huge hit. And so, like, I think it's a, uh, and the glitz was a couple of years before that, which is adapted for TV, but was really popular. So I wonder if they were there was like a little bit of a gold rush for his movies, because then out of sight, out of sight, the um, George Clooney movie came out the following year. That's a really good guess. I don't know it for a fact, but I choose to believe your story now. <laughs> I think that I. That's that's my guess because that's the only way this movie really makes sense to me. Because otherwise, <laughs> it's just you know I, I I like Bridget Fonda. I think she's good with Skeet Ulrich. He looks yeah. yeah like you said like just like I imagined him looking. Exactly. I literally like like I haven't seen too many Skeet Ulrich movies besides Scream. You know, but as I was envisioning Juvenile, I was thinking of basically of a person who looks just like Skeet Ulrich. I always hated Tom Arnold, but he's actually like just right for this movie. Tom Arnold's the best part of this movie. Tom Arnold to me is like Tom Green. If he's in the right thing, he's good. Otherwise, I can't stand the man. But he's just right for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie doesn't like follow him where he goes, you know? Uh huh. I want a lot more of that stuff. And a lot more of him disrupting things. And you know, like he does in the book, like he's just like this kind of in that malevolent force who's just there just like just throwing <laughs> shit around you know yeah like this we're chaos agent we're, we're talking about like the events of this book and and we're kind of making them funnier in our minds than they are in the movie you know yes exactly so i gave the movie like a two and a half when i first watched it and i actually think my rating's going down oh i think about it yeah this is minor schrader yeah yeah i think when we do our our ultimate list of straighters is going to be right at the bottom i don't know about right at the it's going to be close to the bottom yeah well, i'm not sure what we've seen so far that's been worse um you know i'd have to think about that <laughs> yeah we can talk I, about that why am i at another point why am i hesitating to to send it straight to the bottom hmm i don't know you raise a good point. Maybe it will. Maybe it will. Yeah, this is very minor Schrader. You didn't like cat people, but cat people's definitely better. I I think I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that's that might be your lowest rated one so far. So far. So far it's like which hunt. Okay, so let's move on. I think we I think we've killed that one. Talk enough <laughs> about that. Let's talk about something that's a lot more meaty. Speaking of movies that are a lot better than Touch, Affliction, uh, and the book, by the way, uh, the book is a lot, I, um, in terms of the book and the movie, Affliction, much better than Touch. Touch, uh, the book, I've got to say, it was, it was my first experience with Elmore Leonard. I was getting irritated at some of the like macho, manly man writing of it, like, like she breasted boobily down the stairs type of shit. I was getting uh -huh. irritated by that, um, but Affliction, I I've read a couple of Russell Banks short stories before. Uh, I really especially liked his story 
um, a permanent member of the family. That one crawled into a corner of my mind and stayed there. And this is my first of his long form fiction, Affliction. Uh, I plan on reading more because man, did Affliction ever speak to me? Not that I can, I may not even be saying this if I had just watched the movie, um, but because the book goes like so much further into his thoughts or rather, um, or rather his brother Rolf's imagination of, of Wade's thoughts, like as he imagines it, the book goes so much deeper. So as I was reading the book, I was thinking like, well, I don't exactly relate to Wade because I didn't grow up in an abusive household. There's no drug problems in my family. There's um, alcohol in this case. I'm not from New England. I'm not middle-aged. I'm not divorced. I don't have a kid. You know, all this kind of thing. But even still, this, this Wade Whitehouse guy, or at least the way his brother Rolf imagines him to be because Rolf is the narrator of the book you can get a, a touch of it in the movie um, because uh, Willem Dafoe's opening narration at the beginning and at the end of the movie is taken straight from the novel and especially the the final one the one at the end you can hear the way that Rolf kind of takes the story of his brother and uh, and puts it in this lineage of like men all throughout history who do the thing that everybody knows about men, which is that men bottle their feelings until they reach an exploding point because we're not taught how to actually deal with our feelings in a healthy way. And we're just supposed to be like, no, we don't have those, mm -hmm. you know, those are for wimps, those mm -hmm. feelings. <laughs> and know? instead we'll just, drink ourselves to death and just abuse others because we can't let the, those feelings go. Oh my God. The, I it's, hope, I, it's... Hope I, I don't think I'm in that mindset. I mean, I, I hope it, well, my dad wasn't in that mindset either though. So mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference. I'm scared of that. I think, I think calling this affliction is such a great approach to it. Because it is like this this male affliction that so many people carry inside them, mm. where you know you're just carrying this inherited disease of anger and and outsider feelings and hatred of the world that you're stuck in. We're talking about impotence we're, we're, at the same time. Impotence, yeah. There are many scenes in affliction where both Wade and his father Glenn are made to look really pathetic. In a way that's almost funny, were it were it not so sad. <laughs> and and by reflection, Rolf is too. How is Especially, Rolf pathetic? Well, I think Rolf is dwelling on the life of his family, which he thinks is more interesting than his own life. Then I I think Banks makes a lot of points about how Rolf was all alone. He's sitting, you know, he's he's created this kind of very kind of life apart from everything else he teaches at boston u but he doesn't he's not married he has no family of his own he just has his <sighs> students so like i think he i think banks in some ways is saying uh rolf is obsessing over his brother because in some ways his brother had life he he could have had but he also because his brother is actually someone who actually did things 
as mm. opposed to living in the mind. And there's this mind-body kind of dichotomy there too, right? Where uh, weight is all about the physical. Everything about weight is physical, which I think Nick Nolte handles really well in the movie. Yeah. Um, but um, but Rolf, uh, and I think William De- Willem Dafoe also does it very well in the movie, is much more intellectual. He's detached. He's yeah. like a bit back you know so wade is always leaning forward and rolf is always leaning back i hadn't thought about it that way and before, they're both but, reactions yeah. to the father's way of treating the whole family two opposite reactions like yeah. rolf uh rolf pointedly refuses to drink alcohol he's like i don't drink you know and, it's it's like a, a moral thing for him because he's consciously avoiding you know, becoming his dad, where Wade, I guess, you know, thinks like he's just tougher than his dad and he can handle it. Right. He he he's the one who can consume the booze and have it not affect him. But then, you know, the, the sadness of it is that Margie sees it affecting him as the Mar- Sissy Spacek who plays the, mm. the girlfriend, so to speak, fiance, whatever however you want to put it uh rebound she, sees, she starts to see uh the relation him becoming his dad as they go yeah and that's such a scary thing to me and i think uh i think there's a poster that has a blurb like uh like wade whitehouse is deathly afraid of becoming just like his father affliction that's the movie that is awesome <laughs> Uh, I should say one of the other things I liked about Banks's book is he puts you in the minds of other characters too. Mm-hmm. And the little bits we see inside Margie's head really explains so much. Mm. Where he talks about how she she felt rootless too and she just wants someone to glom onto, someone to be part of, a relationship to be in. And she she grabs onto Wade because she can see the the good side of him. You know, because in the movie we see him, he's mostly a toxic picture of toxic masculinity. Yep. And so, you know, there's times when I really wonder what she sees in him. There's a couple scenes like where when they're in the bed together talking, where you can see they do have like this loving relationship. But even in the first scene when he comes up and she's working in the cafe and she's like all sweet to him and he's really cold, I, I don't buy that relationship at that point. Hmm. He's like, she's jumping too fast into this thing that seems really toxic. But the book talks about how she has few choices and how she's feeling you know, alone as a middle-aged woman, how she just wants to have some amount of security in her middle-aged years, getting into her senior years, and how Wade's at least the best port in a storm sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and I liked how uh, Banks gets you in her head. I don't feel like Schrader's able to do that in the same way. She just like kind of there as an accessory. Yeah, like I thought uh like I was saying, I, I wouldn't have had these these deep thoughts that are coming out because I read the book. Maybe if I had just watched the movie, uh, I would not have so much to say. Cause yeah, like um like you you get a lot less of of Wade's mind in the movie and especially Margie's mind like you said and yeah like what you're saying about the book the the reason that Margie and Wade 
like in the book, it's very clear to me that they both keep a distance from each other. It's kind of like, um, like, uh, what I used to say when I was 15 and I had never been on a date, I said, fuck love. I don't need it. Right. I don't need it. You know, <laughs> I'll keep everybody at arm's length. But now, like, now that they're both middle-aged and they've been hurt and they have life experience, they are like back to that. They're like, no, I'm not falling in love. We, we just hook up and we lean on each other sometimes, but we're not in love in the movie. It kind of feels like perfunctory, their relationship, like, like, a, of course they would just, have someone because most people do it's not as deep in the movie it feels more attached to him in the movie too true yeah we're like in the in the book they feel like she feels like she's like basic they're kind of using each other in a way like you're saying mm-hmm. really yeah. i mean a lot of second marriages are like that i guess you know where you know they they've had the love now they want to have someone who they can just be reasonably happy with and have <laughs> a decent life you know but not then be alone for the rest of their life but what if like so that's one way to look at a second marriage and i've never thought about this before in my life but maybe somebody who doesn't come from from wade's little town maybe if you have a lot of options and you're yeah. in a second marriage it could be because like the second marriage may be even better than the first marriage because like you're both um i guess i in my mind i was thinking that both of these people are both in their second marriage so if that's the case maybe these two people think like um like we're both more mature for having gone through one marriage now we really know how it's done and what not to do. And we're more mature, right? That could be like the optimistic way to think of a second marriage. But, but nobody, nobody in this, in this story is in that kind of a mindset. Not even Rolf, not even anybody who's moved out of New Hampshire, mm -hmm. like, uh, like their sister, you know? The Jesus freak. Yeah, right. Yeah, Rolf oh, doesn't have it figured out either. I was going to say, uh, when you brought up Rolf, I was going to say that I, like, you know, like, I am I am a more similar person to Rolf than I am to a Wade. But I, I, work with, I work with guys who are like Wade, and I'm more like Rolf. And, uh, yeah, that just, it really makes me think. <laughs> yeah. I work with a lot of Rolfs. You do? Yeah. I work in computer science. So okay, I yeah. work with thinkers. Yeah. And the theoretical thinkers, people who go far beyond that. And, but a lot of them have like second lives. It's really interesting. Uh, where like they, whatever it might be, poly relationships or their obsessive hobbies or um, like I work with one guy who's in his 50s and he's a triathlete, hmm. you know, because because you need this other side of you to do things to 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 take in the world. Yeah, I yeah. I, I I like to do CrossFit, although I haven't lost any weight doing it. <laughs> you got to get yourself out of that mind. 
right? That's part of Wade's problem too. It's like he can't get himself out of his own head. Like he he drinks in part to like escape his own world, but it just makes it worse. Wade mm-hmm. is just trapped, right? And that's why he gets so obsessed with this alleged murder, which I love that we never really get resolved in, in either the book or the movie. I love that too. It's like like uh, the way that it's written, both this is a success of the movie in both the book and the movie. You feel like you can understand why Wade would think about uh, Evan Twombly's accidental shooting. Um, in the book, you're even led to believe, like for a fact, that that uh, Jack Hewitt shot him for a while, for most of the book. Um, but then, like as it goes on, and in the movie, you know, it, it's ambiguous. Like you can see why Wade would think that, especially because Wade is this guy who is spiraling down, coming to a like a crash landing in his life. And uh, you can see why he would latch on to it, but it's actually just a coincidence. And Wade like looks straight past what's actually going on when Alma Pittman, his ex-wife's aunt, shows him that um that Evan Twombly's son-in-law and Wade's boss are buying up all these properties discreetly around town like uh, very much Walt Disney style what he did yeah. in Florida and they're going to make a big freaking ski resort and gentrify the whole place you know I love how it kind of twists this idea of the conspiracy yeah right? yeah like you wanted to my first reaction is, oh, he's buying up all this land. It's this great, grand thing. And I realize it's like Chinatown or like Walt Disney. And he's just going to improve the area. And the irony is it does improve the area. It get, it gets the whole region out of its doldrums, out of this, this depression that's been in for all these decades and actually brings some money in. And yeah, okay, then it brings the problem with the gentrification too. But many people get much richer because of it. And it's like, so Wade in a way is that kind of guy with his finger in the dam holding back the river from flowing or something. Mm. I saw the, I saw it as like, um, it brings more prosperity to the region for sure. But it does it by, in my view, I got the impression that what, um, what these land developers are doing is they're, they're, they're doing this by, in my view, not building on what's there, but by bulldozing this community and just starting something else. But what's there? What's really there? You got a church, you got a restaurant, you got all these people who know each other, you know? You lose you lose a small town, for sure. Yeah. Which is a positive and a negative. Right. There are positives and negatives to that. Uh Affliction is one of these books. Everybody's been at work has been asking me, hey, what you reading? And the way I've been describing it to them is, oh, you know, it's one of these books where everything sucks and everybody sucks and nobody's happy and this small town sucks and my life sucks. It's it's one of those books, but it's written so beautifully that it, it spoke to me. It's the, Rolf is a history professor, right? He thinks about history. I hated history in high school because it's just memorization. But now I love history because it explains everything. So I'm, I'm getting into history 
as I speak. And as I learn more about history, I like frame things going on right now in history. And that's what Rolf does at in his narration at the end of the book and also through our, his narration at the end of the movie, you get a taste of what he does all throughout the book, which is he frames Wade Whitehouse as like, you know, like a Neanderthal. But mm -hmm. instead of a cave, he's in a trailer, you know? Love that. Uh, yeah, your comments about history, I totally relate to. I've actually, I've written history books. I mean, Whoa. I, I wrote my histories of comics in the 1980s, 90s, um, and 70s too. And I didn't so know I've, this. I've been on that side of, I've done that side of things. I don't, I don't have a history degree. My degree is in political science. Um, but yeah, it was one of my side projects at one point in my life. Um, and and I think the big problem with history is we we learn it as Columbus discovered America in 1492 or whatever, and not about Columbus destroying, was, did Columbus even set foot in America? What did it do to society? How did our scars from the colonial period affect the, how we even live today? All that kind of thing. Um, but to go back to the movie, what I like is that all this history uh kind of gives us a sense that like all throughout everything we see now is this complicated legacy that we that we built on top of in a weird way it's like building on top of indian native american excuse me graveyards i know the difference um <laughs> sorry that was a weird slip there uh but you know native american graveyards right or 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 you know these small towns or whatever so, you know, every part of the country is gentrifying in one way or another, it seems. Yeah. And we're destroying these legacies. Now, in some ways, that's a bad thing. In some ways, it's a good thing. But there's this complexity to it. Um, so I was just watching Hoop Dreams. Have you seen Hoop Dreams? I love that one. Amazing film, right? And that on the Criterion bonus features, they go back uh, 10 and 15 years later and see how the the guys are doing and they were saying uh the cabrini green area of chicago which was really poor has started to gentrify hmm. and so they're starting to see new people move into the community and they're building condos on top of the housing projects and i'm thinking there's another perfect example of this right mm -hmm. you're losing all this history in this case all the kind of ethnic life that grew up there too but you're also driving crime out of the area you're you're increasing the the opportunities for people to to leave you're probably improving the schools too so it's such an interesting kind of balancing act about how do we honor the history and also allow society to improve itself is it the same people though who are prospering or is it different people like uh like wade describes them as summer people from massachusetts is it just summer people moving in so and replacing me... Let me turn this around. So La Riviere went to high school there, at least, right? Mm -hmm. He may have been born there. He's he's the one who's come up with this conspiracy to buy up the land and become prosperous. Uh, he, he's as much a part of the community as anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, so doesn't he have, shouldn't he have the opportunity to become a millionaire himself? Sure. But like, I... <laughs> Man, La Riviere should be happy with what he's got. I think he has enough. The good business is doing well. He does. He has like the most prosperous business in Lawton. 
I like him too in the book too much more. You just get the sense of like uh, the whole bit of in the book about how he's all obsessed with cleanliness and how he wants to keep everything just right and he wants to keep his trucks polished and everything. I just really like appreciated the fact that like he that Banks goes so into depth with giving this man like this complexity. You get a sense of like really who he is as a person that we don't really get in the movie in the same way at all. Yeah, some some character like every character has a whole history in the book. Every single one. In the movie, some of that has to go away so that it can be two hours, but I know the four hour well the the, the TV series they could have made up made from it, I suppose, but yeah <laughs> would have had that. Um uh, but does does Riviera should Riviera become a millionaire? Well, I, obviously it's in his it, it, it's something he wanted to do. He's been aspiring for that. He's been working on it for years. Mm-hmm. Put five years of his time and money into it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, why not? Why shouldn't he be? He's a striver. Why shouldn't he, why shouldn't he be smart about his investments? Please, wow. don't you want to be a millionaire one day? You know, why Why do I hate rich people so much? Is it just that I'm just jealous? <laughs> <laughs> or to put it another way when you're 50 wouldn't you want to have like a million dollars in your 401k oh my god if if i'm 50 years old and i'm still living the way i live right now yeah i'll be pissed <laughs> like you what did i do won't. you probably won't uh there's a reason i went into software by the way <laughs> there is there is money here um uh, but yeah i mean i i don't think he's like a bad i i don't think le riviere is anything other than a guy who's like just trying to trying to get ahead in the world and uh he's no he's same, he's got the same aspirations we all do which is just to do to to like build on what he's got and get better and better it's obviously a smart guy who's yeah that business he's like the he's the small town version of this kind of person which is like a you know a a closer down-to-earth version of this kind of person this kind of like you know land developer who's you know so often a villain in so many movies right um but he's the small town version of that like he is a member of this community and he wants to change the community he's not some sinister figure like that john houston character in chinatown right yeah, he's more of a real person than that. Especially in the book, but also in the movie a little bit. It... Hmm. Wade's dad is like Satan in the in the movie and in the book. But again, in the book, we get some idea of why he is that way. True, true. Like in the I in the movie, when he does that tangent and when when banks does that tangent and talks about how he effectively was orphaned and was selected like wow that just gave me a whole different perspective on things yeah like glenn has a whole backstory the book uh for a few paragraphs goes into wade's grandparents glenn's parents and i think it maybe even passingly mentions uh glenn's grandparents wade's great-grandparents jill's great-great-grandparents so and you know it's rolf telling the story in the book 
and Rolf is a history professor. So of course Rolf is thinking about things this way. And it's the same way I think about these things. All these conflicts in the world or all these conflicts in people's families, like it goes all the way back. You can just, mm -hmm. well, you know, well, he did it first, but he did this before I did, but I did this before he did, but, but I was there first, but I was there before that, but this guy was here before that. You can just go all the way back. Like you just have to, when does it stop? When do people stop? And I'm sure Rolf sees himself as somebody who is breaking the cycle. And because he doesn't drink and because he's not violent, in a way he is stopping the cycle. But like like you were saying, which is a great observation, like Rolf isn't married, lives alone. So like, is he is he is he breaking the cycle of abuse or is he just breaking the cycle of life <laughs> you know yeah yeah is he just living his own different depression yeah wade's depression is kind of formative and rolf's is just more kind of introverted yeah like Rolf uh, constantly wants to look good. He never puts himself in a bad spot at any point in the movie where Wade really goes out there. And, uh, and man, there are some scenes in Affliction. There are several of these scenes where Wade um, is like pretty much standing there with his pants down, like, um, like when he pushes his ex-wife's new husband Lillian's uh, stepdad or Jill's stepdad and um, Lillian's husband yeah yeah Lillian's new husband yeah and Wade is just standing there in the snow or uh, like his confrontation with Jack Hewitt where Jack shoots out one of his tires and then drives away and again Wade is standing there in the snow <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or um or when when Wade uh when Wade gets really pissed off at Mel Gordon and tries to give him a speeding ticket, like a moving violation, and Mel Gordon, because he's this rich out of stater, like, don't you know who I am? kind of person, he takes the moving violation, pushes it back into Wade's chest, and basically says, like, you can you can stuff that moving violation and closes the door. And again, mm -hmm. Wade is standing there in the snow and it's so nick nolte is great in this movie nick nolte should have won an oscar isn't he he's the the this like pathetic expression in, in on his face and in his body language just a man who is trying to assert himself and the world around him is saying no you stay down he's uh he's like he is the lonely man. Yeah. He's the uh -huh. man who just who has like all this soul inside of himself and he just can't escape it who he is. He wants to be better, but in this case, he does he has no idea how to be better. And like at least Mishima had some like tradition he wanted to tie himself to. Yeah, yeah. I was also thinking about Mishima a little bit as I was as I was watching this one. Yeah. It's like 
and Mishima totally sees himself as part of a lineage, obviously, you know, the lineage of the samurai, right? right. Wade doesn't really think of himself. Wade doesn't have the mind that Rolf does. Rolf is doing all of this thinking on Wade's behalf and, and Wade is just trying to survive. You know, he's just like, he's, and he resorts to revenge at the end. Mm -hmm. There's just no other, he can't think of anything else. It's just the it's, the... it's all revenge. He can't think about anyone else's feelings. I mean, the way he treats his daughter is just fucking appalling. It's pathetic. Like, he, he forgets, you know. He f at, There are scenes in the movie, and Nick Nolte is great in these scenes, where he's, like, speaking to his daughter um, in this kind of, like, jolly kind of way just like joking around with her hiding he's hiding how he really feels which is you know when when you're a parent i mean my parents did this to me of course they they don't like you know lean into you all the way they will your parents will hold back when addressing you but then they're during those moments where wade forgets like when he grabs uh nick's um Nick's shirt collar right in front of his daughter mm -hmm. or you know when he hits his daughter that one time at the near the very end which is pretty much the last straw when I think he's at that point he's already decided that shit's gonna go down you know he's he's doing the Travis Bickle thing but yeah. like that is the that is the moment where like he's he's pushing it he's pushing his life over the cliff and when he hits his daughter and she rides away with with Margie just to be away from him that is when you know his life fall starts the fall the fall to the the pit huh he's even more in that, more more unempowered than Travis Bickle isn't he true yeah at least Bickle can actually execute on his uh, maybe the wrong choice of words on his uh, ambitions, but Wade just kind of is just a failure. Yeah, B Travis Bickle has a little bit of a pseudo training montage, but but Wade like just falls and falls and falls, and he spends the movie trying to come up with some like some kind of way to get out on top uh, in two different ways with his trying to get custody of his daughter. He's that's a subplot. And also he's trying to uh, ruin Mel Gordon's weekend. <laughs> and that leads him to the conspiracy about the land development, which La Riviere is a part of. And there's also the subplot of Evan Twombly being killed under mysterious circumstances i'll say he really tries he tries and tries and tries in his way to bring this all together and get out on top wade whitehouse wins finally but he doesn't achieve it and he becomes so desperate at the end of the movie that he's just he just wants to hit people at the end
he won't even listen to wait to um yeah to um to Rolf's advice too because they they make a point in the movie of having Rolf, the the phone call between the two of where Rolf says just concentrate on one thing at a time get get one thing resolved and then move on to the next thing yeah but Wade's like so like he's seeing red about everything yeah he's just so like over the top just angry about every possible thing that's happening to him he's got to resolve them all immediately uh, so he's he, he truly is his own worst enemy I do that. Oh my God. I do that exact thing. I'd look at all the problems in my life and feel like, how am I ever going to climb on top of this whole pile of crap I have to deal with? When the reality, like Rolf says, is you have to do it one at a time. You know? Like you're not gonna you're not gonna pay off all your debts in one day. You gotta pay them yeah. off one at a time. You yeah. Get on top of it, right? But uh yeah. This this impulse. Oh no no! I I gotta kill them all. Yeah. Get my student loans into my credit card. <laughs> Pay all of it off immediately. Yeah. Right. But you can't. It would you be can't. so nice if you could. It would be so much better if you could. But you have to settle for something that's just a bit crappier than that. And that's the thing. It's like Wade could have settled. Things could have been okay. He could have. He could have. His own his own bullshit that got in his own way. He could have had a decent enough life with Margie. He could mm -hmm. have had a decent life taking care of his dad. Kind of a sad, pathetic life, horrible life, but he could have had a life with him. Although mm -hmm. the dad was like such a spitting kind of nasty, I don't know, Bronco or something that yeah. couldn't really be tamed. <laughs> that scene where they're in the car together and and they and Glenn spits on Wade. And they get in that fight. Margie's trapped in the middle. It's like, I've been there. I've been like in the middle of my parents fighting like that. It's like the worst feeling you could ever have. Ouch. All that fighting. I My parents got divorced when I was four. So I don't remember most of that. But I remember the like getting two different stories about everything that you ask uh -huh. about. <sighs> both stayed together, but they would have, they had these knockdown fights for mm. a while. Damn, that really sucks. You get over it after a while. Mm. That scene also really stood out to me, but not the spitting. Um, that's in the book. Also, Wade's line uh, that he says during that scene is also in the book, but the way that Nick Nolte does it and the way that James Coburn reacts to it and they're in the car, which I believe is a different location than where it happens in the book. In the movie, they're trapped in the car like this. And Margie right, yeah. is also there. I think it's like outside in the book. Mm -hmm. But but it's in the maybe? car tr in a cramped little 90s sedan yeah. in, the, in the movie. They're all sitting in the front seat. Yeah. And Nick, Nolte's, Nick Nolte growls. He goes, I wish you would die. And oh, that was so powerful to me. It it's like there's no flowery, there's no poetical language going on there. That is just Wade's thoughts bare. I wish you would die. And it's true. Yeah, it's exactly how he felt. Yeah, yeah, he felt some relief when he saw his mom died. A little like, bit of relief, yeah. Like uh well, partially happiness for his mom when the book talks about that too. That, that is was, 
<laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen in the book. Uh, that scene is horrifying in the book, and it's pretty disturbing in the movie as well. It's like something out of Charles Dickens or something. It is uh -huh. like so dark. Just the just like going to see your parents. Oh my god! And, and, and the, the movie is in a, is worse in a way because you see her frozen, literally frozen there in the bed. It's like, yeah, like what a, what a moment! And, and, and like, Glenn what a doesn't terrible care. Child he is. What a terrible um, child Wade is. Oh man. <laughs> He's only going wow. out there because he wants to talk about how he's engaged to Margie. Like the, the book talks about this too. He never goes out to visit them, never does anything to support them. Doesn't live very far from them. He's willing mm -hmm. to take over the house when he has a reason to, but he's not going to be there for his dad in any way. Of course, the dad pushes him away. And that's the, that's like such a dilemma in the story too. It's like the two of them together have this incredibly fraught relationship. <laughs> And Glenn is, Glenn is pathetic too. Anybody who feels so feckless in their life that they have to assert themselves in this macho way over their children is a wuss. Yeah. Glenn is the real wimp. Yeah, Glenn is the real wimp, but Glenn did, did Glenn know any better? No, Glenn wasn't taught how to do any better, of course. Yeah. Glenn grew up in pretty similar circumstances. Pretty, yeah. He fought in the war, too, if I remember. He talks about that a little bit. Do I not remember remembering something else? I don't um, but he's the that. right age to have fought in, in at least. Well, so he's like 60 some in the movie, maybe 70 in the movie. So saying he's 70 in the movie, start subtracting. So the movie came out in 93 or 90, 97. He's about that age to have fought in, well, his two sons fought and died in Vietnam. Vietnam, right. So, yeah, he could have been a World War II vet. Mm. He's also carrying the pain of his sons dying in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just totally glanced over. Yeah, you know, two more sons. They died in Vietnam. Whatever. And then these two sons just were the ones who survived and One's a drunk and one's a wimp. And uh, this is what I'm stuck with. I'm not stuck with these boys who in the in the book, he also has kind of like a, a um, altar for them, right? He's got the their pictures up and the mm. medals, if I remember right. Mm. And these kids are like the ones he's stuck with. Yeah. <laughs> or if the other two kids had come back from Vietnam, they wouldn't just as fucked up as these guys are, I think, but. I would I would probably be proud of my kids if they were like Wade and Rolf. I would I would love them. I wouldn't say the things that Glenn says to them. Blaze, you're not Glenn. <laughs> I'm just you're built actually, different. You're just built different. <laughs> you mean that, But yeah. then my you know, my childhood was a lot better than Glenn's. And as a result. My childhood was a lot better than Wade's or Rolf's or Lena's. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's why it's the affliction. It's the, this affliction of the legacy of pain and and just being neglected. Mm. 
in a way, like when when um Glenn not Glenn, excuse me, when Wade lights the car on fire and we see that black smoke all coming up, it's almost like a purging kind of thing. Like I'm gonna destroy this legacy forever. For fans of uh Andre Tarkovsky, they would really like that scene. <laughs> yes. Good point. <laughs> that was such a powerful image of of Wade sitting in like his, his dad's kitchen, just drinking some booze while the barn and it's for real, you know. This is a 90s movie. So out there in the yard, outside the window, the the barn and his dad's truck is burning while while Wade just sits there drinking and he sits there for a long time while Rolf delivers the narration. I also thought um, I really liked the way that Schrader, this is almost like kind of a, an early example of Schrader changing the format. Mishima also changes like film formats during its runtime, but I'm talking about the scenes of Wade's childhood in Affliction. Yeah where yeah. I think like the film stock changes. I don't know if he's like, it's, if maybe it's on like 16 millimeter or something. And and also he does this like 90s shaky cam during yeah. those scenes, the the weird zooming in and out, like pseudo documentary. Uh-huh. It's very kind of early born movies kind of. Yes, yeah. It's like that. Uh, so Mishima, yeah. Mishima also changes formats like that. But but affliction, I can the way that Wade's childhood looks worse than the rest of the movie because of its different filming technique. I was I was thinking of certain parts in the card counter, certain parts of autofocus, certain parts of a very brief moment right at the end of uh, of Master Gardener, where. Schrader just kind of gets weird with it and because it's yeah, so weird yeah. it, because the the filmmaking is kind of like shaky rocky during these parts where Schrader breaks his usual style um it it tends to have this you, you would be forgiven I would forgive you if you had this vis if I showed this movie to my friends I would forgive them if they had this visceral reaction of like <laughs> like chuckling like oh the the move the filmmaking all of a sudden got like a little bit crappier during these parts. Right, right. And they would, I would forgive them for thinking that if I showed them autofocus or the card counter or a uh, master gardener, but like Schrader, I, I see he keeps doing this from this point forward in his career. He does this. Okay. You're going to, you're going to see that big time in autofocus. I'm looking forward to autofocus. I'm very curious about that. Mm. Uh, finish on this topic and then we can wrap up and then we can talk about our focus which is um, I like how he uses the, the change of film stock to give us the view through Wade's eyes as a kid yeah right? we, we get it we get it like viscerally that's something that's better I think in the movie than the book the book has the flashbacks and they're well told and very interesting but we're always seeing them through raw size and it's got a very consistent narrator in film, because of the nature of film, you can use different film stocks and other techniques, which mm-hmm. are now like commonplace, but then was a lot more, a lot rarer to get the sense of like, just a different feeling for what's happening there. 
and you don't even need to have it told to you. You get it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful. It's one of the things I love about film. Yeah. Like I was, I was uh, talking about it in a nerdish way, like, ooh, he does this again further in his career, but you're explaining the reason why he did it, which is the important <laughs> part. It, it creates a different feeling. And those, those scenes where he changes film stock for Wade's childhood, those scenes, the music also um, gets like this creepy edge to it um, during those scenes. So it, it feels like, like a steam locomotive coming for the camera during those scenes. Like, oh my God, something's about to happen. But Schrader is a filmmaker with a great deal of restraint. You're sometimes more than others. Michael, I'm not familiar with Michael Brooks. I was not familiar with him. I just Googled him. But Michael Brooks, uh, he's a Canadian and he makes like guitar music. He collaborates with like uh, musicians from different parts of the world, making like world music. Um, he invented a guitar that is able to like feedback on itself so you have like you can hold a note infinitely and um and you too uh their song with or without you uses that guitar um yeah okay i know exactly what you're talking about yeah yeah Uh uh-huh so very interesting musicians again that schrader's working with and it all adds up to the important part, yeah, like you were saying, which is the, the the story. This we've been talking about it for a while now. Just like it's so vivid in my mind, and it, particularly because I read the book, it's so vivid. And I'm I I convinced my library to to carry the book. They got it just for me. So if you ever come down to my neck of the woods and you see a copy of affliction in the library you're welcome and i'm i'm gonna buy my own copy of this book for myself it touched me so much where touch did not ironically right yeah touch was just this kind of <laughs> almost nothing kind of story and reading the book it's pulp you know, it's pulp and uh, well that was the early leonard book too like he, he makes a point in the intro of talking about like a second or third book he had trouble selling it I mean, by two or three books after that, he had a publisher who was giving him good advances. This was like basically a book he wrote on spec to try and launch his career. So, you know, it's not well thought through and just doesn't work in the same way some of his later stuff does. So mm. that's fine. Um, Affliction is a tough ass read. And yeah. A tough ass watch. And it's, man. Well, if you could admire Mishima for its artistry you could admire patty hearst for like how complicated her story is but i'm not sure you, like it's is this is a tough ass watch i'll just come back to that and read that reminds me of uh something i wanted to say which is like um like if you watch blue collar you get like the genre thrills or i was gonna say hardcore Hardcore is similar. Um, at least it takes place in a similar part of the world, the northern U.S. All that snow. This movie was shot in Quebec. 
I have never seen so much snow in my life ever. Um, just crazy. The, I'm so glad this movie was not shot in California, you know? Like, wow. That yeah, incredible, so right. yeah. incredible some of the images in this movie. Um, but besides that, like, you watch hardcore and you get these like genre, these sleazy genre thrills. You get George C. Scott like screaming at people, which I love. Yeah. Um, you watch Mishima and the craftsmanship is so beautiful. And it's a great movie. One of my favorite movies ever. It speaks to me so much. You know, as I was saying during that episode, it's a portrait of a guy who has depression in my eyes. It's very powerful to me, but also you can just watch that movie to appreciate the craftsmanship and not really get what it's going for. Um, you can watch Light Sleeper to get your neo-noir hit, but Affliction is a drama. There are no genre thrills. It's it's like It's almost like Schrader taking this kind of story and not mixing it with anything else. It's the heavy stuff. It's that straight shot of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> I've never even heard of Forever Mine. So I'm curious about that. Have you seen it? You know anything about it? No, I don't know anything about it, but I'm super excited because it was shot in St. Petersburg, Florida. Represent. I might be going there tonight. Nice. Coincidentally. Right. <laughs> so I look forward. I look forward to seeing uh Forever Mine, two extremes. Affliction to Forever Mine, he's shooting in Quebec and then in Florida. And I'm so I'm so excited to see how Schrader films, not just Florida, but my part of Florida. <laughs> Joe Fines, the late Ray Liotta, Gretchen Mall in Forever Mine. And I don't know anything about the plot either. I love going into movies like with that. It's the best. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even want to know anything about a movie. Usually, I don't even want to know who the actors are. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that it's in Florida, but I'm so excited. <laughs> What's he going to film? What's he going to film? Is he going to film gonna at the taco bus? What's he going to film? <laughs> so I look forward to that. And next time, we're also talking about autofocus, correct? Yes, we are. Story of I, Bob Crane. I've seen autofocus. Autofocus is good. Um... I think I think affliction is better, but autofocus uh he kind of is is mixing that story with a little bit a little bit of the thriller kind of thing or like a murder intrigue. Of course, I the think, story of Bob Crane. I think it's I, I like these stories where people have double lives too. Yeah, that's a huge that. that's huge in autofocus. That's the movie. And then Greg Kinnear is in a serious role. Yeah. That's also very interesting. Mm -hmm. He's place. really good in it. Yeah. You're welcome. 